Section 2 of The Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott First Part Elements of Pure Practical Reason Book 1 The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason Chapter 1 Of the Principles of Pure Practical Reason Theorem 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All material practical principles as such are of one and the same kind, and come under the general principle of self-love or private happiness. Pleasure arising from the idea of the idea of the existence of a thing, in so far as it is to determine the desire of this thing, is founded on the susceptibility of the subject since it depends on the presence of an object. Hence it belongs to sense, feeling, and not to understanding, which expresses a relation of the idea to an object, according to concepts, not to the subject, according to feelings. It is, then, practical only in so far as the faculty of desire is determined by the sensation of agreeableness which the subject expects from the actual existence of the object. Now, a rational being's consciousness of the pleasantness of life uninterruptedly accompanying his whole existence is happiness, and the principle which makes this the supreme ground of determination of the will is the principle of self-love. All material principles, then, which place the determining ground of the will in the pleasure or pain to be received from the existence of any object, are all of the same kind inasmuch as they all belong to the principle of self-love or private happiness. Corollary All material practical rules place the determining principle of the will in the lower desires, and if there were no purely formal laws of the will adequate to determine it, then we could not admit any higher desire at all. Remark 1 It is surprising that men otherwise acute, can think it possible to distinguish between higher and lower desires, according as the ideas which are connected with the feeling of pleasure have their origin in the senses or in the understanding. For when we inquire what are the determining grounds of desire, and place them in some expected pleasantness, it is of no consequence whence the idea of this pleasing object is derived, but only how much it pleases. Whether an idea has its seat and source in the understanding or not, if it can only determine the choice by presupposing a feeling of pleasure in the subject, it follows that its capability of determining the choice depends altogether on the nature of the inner sense, namely, that this can be agreeably affected by it. However dissimilar ideas of objects may be, though they be ideas of the understanding, or even of the reason in contrast to ideas of sense, yet the feeling of pleasure, by means of which they constitute the determining principle of the will, the expected satisfaction, which impels the activity to the production of the object, is of one and the same kind, not only inasmuch as it can only be known empirically, but also inasmuch as it affects one and the same vital force which manifests itself in the faculty of desire, 
and in this respect can only differ in degree from every other ground of determination. Otherwise, how could we compare, in respect of magnitude, two principles of determination, the ideas of which depend upon different faculties, so as to prefer that which affects the faculty of desire in the highest degree? The same man may return unread an instructive book which he cannot again obtain, in order not to miss a hunt. He may depart in the midst of a fine speech, in order not to be late for dinner. He may leave a rational conversation, such as he otherwise values highly, to take his place at the gaming table. He may even repulse a poor man, whom he at other times takes pleasure in benefiting, because he has only just enough money in his pocket to pay for his admission to the theatre. If the determination of his will rests on the feeling of agreeableness or disagreeableness that he expects from any cause, it is all the same to him by what sort of ideas he will be affected. The only thing that concerns him, in order to decide his choice, is how great, how long continued, how easily obtained, and how often repeated this agreeableness is just as to the man who wants money to spend it is all the same whether the gold was dug out of a mountain or washed out of the sand provided it is everywhere accepted at the same value so the man who cares only for the enjoyment of life does not ask whether the ideas are of the understanding or the senses but only how much and how great pleasure they will give for the longest time it is only those that would gladly deny to pure reason the power of determining the will, without the presupposition of any feeling, who could deviate so far from their own exposition as to describe as quite heterogeneous what they have themselves previously brought under one and the same principle. Thus, for example, it is observed that we can find pleasure in the mere exercise of power, in the consciousness of our strength of mind in overcoming obstacles which are opposed to our designs in the culture of our mental talents, etc. And we justly call these more refined pleasures and enjoyments, because they are more in our power than others. They do not wear out, but rather increase the capacity for further enjoyment of them, and while they delight, they at the same time cultivate. But to say on this account, that they determine the will in a different way, and not through sense, whereas the possibility of the pleasure presupposes a feeling for it implanted in us, which is the first condition of this satisfaction. This is just as when ignorant persons that like to dabble in metaphysics imagine matter so subtle, so super-subtle, that they almost make themselves giddy with it, and then think that in this way they have conceived it as a spiritual and yet extended being. If with Epicurus we make virtue determine the will only by means of the pleasure it promises, we cannot afterwards blame him for holding that this pleasure is of the same kind as those of the coarsest senses. For we have no reason whatever to charge him with holding that the ideas by which this feeling is excited in us belong merely to the bodily senses. As far as can be conjectured, he sought the source of many of them in the use of the higher cognitive faculty, but this did not prevent him, and could not prevent him, from holding on the same principle above stated, that the pleasure itself which those intellectual ideas give us, and by which alone they can determine the will, is just of the same kind. 
Consistency is the highest obligation of a philosopher, and yet the most rarely found. The ancient Greek schools give us more examples of it than we find in our synchronistic age, in which a certain shallow and dishonest system of compromise and contradictory principles is devised, because it commends itself better to a public which is content to know something of everything and nothing thoroughly, so as to please every party. The principle of private happiness, however much understanding and reason may be used in it, cannot contain any other determining principles for the will than those which belong to the lower desires. And either there are no higher desires at all, or pure reason must of itself alone be practical. That is, it must be able to determine the will by the mere form of the practical rule without supposing any feeling, and consequently without any idea of pleasant or unpleasant, which is a matter of desire, and which is always an empirical condition of the principles. Then only, when reason itself determines the will, not as a servant of the inclination, it is really a higher desire to which that which is pathologically determined is subordinate, and is really, and even specifically, distinct from the latter so that even the slightest admixture of the motives of the latter impairs its strength and superiority, just as in a mathematical demonstration the least empirical condition would degrade and destroy its force and value. Reason, with its practical law, determines the will immediately, not by means of an intervening feeling of pleasure or pain, not even of pleasure in the law itself. And it is only because it can, as pure reason, be practical that it is possible for it to be legislative. Remark 2. To be happy is necessarily the wish of every finite rational being, and this, therefore, is inevitably a determining principle of its faculty of desire. For we are not in possession, originally, of satisfaction with our whole existence a bliss which would imply a consciousness of our own independent self-sufficiency. This is a problem imposed upon us by our own finite nature, because we have wants, and these wants regard the matter of our desires, that is, something that is relative to a subjective feeling of pleasure or pain, which determines what we need in order to be satisfied with our condition. But just because this material principle of determination can only be empirically known by the subject, it is impossible to regard this problem as a law. For a law, being objective, must contain the very same principle of determination of the will in all cases and for all rational beings. For, although the notion of happiness is in every case the foundation of practical relation of the objects to the desires, yet it is only a general name for the subjective determining principles and determines nothing specifically, whereas this is what alone we are concerned with in this practical problem, which cannot be solved at all without such specific determination, for it is every man's own special feeling of pleasure and pain that decides in what he is to place his happiness, and even in the same subject this will vary with the difference of his wants according as this feeling changes, and thus a law which is subjectively necessary as a law of nature, is objectively a very contingent practical principle, which can and must be very different in different subjects, 
and therefore can never furnish a law, since in the desire for happiness it is not the form of conformity to law that is decisive, but simply the matter, namely, whether I am to expect pleasure in following the law, and how much. Principles of self-love may indeed contain universal precepts of skill, how to find means to accomplish one's purpose, but in that case they are merely theoretical principles. Footnote here. As, for example, how he who would like to eat bread should contrive a mill, but practical precepts founded on them can never be universal for the determining principle of the desire is based on the feeling of pleasure and pain, which can never be supposed to be universally directed to the same objects. Footnote on Theoretical Principles Propositions, which in mathematics or physics are called practical, ought properly to be called technical, for they have nothing to do with the determination of the theoretical. They only point out how the certain must is to be produced and are, therefore, just as theoretical as any propositions which express the connection of a cause with an effect. Now, whoever chooses the effect must also choose the cause. End footnote. Even supposing, however, that all finite rational beings are thoroughly agreed as to what were the objects of their feelings of pleasure and pain, and also as to the means which they must employ to attain the one and avoid the other, Still, they could by no means set up the principle of self-love as a practical law, for this unanimity itself would be only contingent. The principle of determination would still be only subjectively valid and merely empirical, and would not possess the necessity which is conceived in every law, namely, an objective necessity arising from a priori grounds unless indeed we hold this necessity to be not at all practical, but merely physical, viz. that our action is as inevitably determined by our inclination as yawning when we see others yawn. It would be better to maintain that there are no practical laws at all, but only counsels for the service of our desires, than to raise merely subjective principles to the rank of practical laws, which have objective necessity, and not merely subjective and which must be known by reason a priori, not by experience, however empirically universal this may be. Even the rules of corresponding phenomena are only called laws of nature, e.g. the mechanical laws, when we either know them really a priori, or, as in the case of chemical laws, suppose that they would be known a priori from objective grounds if our insight reached further. But, in the case of merely subjective practical principles, it is expressly made a condition that they rest not on objective, but on subjective conditions of choice, and hence that they must always be represented as mere maxims, never as practical laws. This second remark seems at first sight to be mere verbal refinement, but it defines the terms of the most important distinction which can come into consideration in practical investigations. End of section 2